I, I think nearly everyone in this room, like Peter said, can resonate with at least the chorus in that song uh, in, in part or at some time in our life. There, there's been a time, uh, probably everyone in, in this room has felt like they wish they could be like the cool kid, whether it is in middle school or high school, whether that's at your job, whether that's in college, whether that's in your neighborhood, even whether that's at your, at your church. And I think the reason is that ultimately, as humans, we are created with a deep longing, and not, not just a longing, but even a need to be in relationship, a need to have friendship. So I think that's the reason that this song resonates with so many people, not just because it's catchy, but because we were designed to have friendships. Author Wesley Hill, uh, an author and uh, seminary professor who we quoted a few times last week and referenced him, he describes this innate desire that we all have to be known by others and to have deep friendships. He writes, I need people who know what time my plane lands, who will worry about me when I don't show up, when I say I will. I need people I can call and tell about that funny thing that happened in the hallways after class. I need to know that, come hell or high water, a few people will stay with me, loving me in spite of my faults and caring for me when I'm down. More, I need people for whom I can care. As a friend of mine put it, you want someone for whom you can make soup if she's sick, not just someone who will make soup for you when you're sick. So obviously there's a spectrum between people who really need lots of relationships and not lots of friends and other people maybe on the other side of the spectrum that maybe just need a few close friends or close relationships. But the point is we all long to be known. We all need to have relationships and friendships in our life. And the more and more I talk with people, the more people I meet, I see that so many people in our culture, in our world, are just very, very lonely. They want friendship, they want to be known, and they have this deep desire for that, that often is unmet. Welcome again to Hiawatha. My name is Spencer. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, we are now in a, a sermon series called Big Questions. So we usually go through a whole book of the Bible uh, at a time, but this uh, summer we are switching the series up, and we're preaching on questions that our church has for us. So questions that people are wrestling with or uh, just things they don't know about the Bible or about faith or Jesus or us as a church. And so we're preaching through those. And this week we're going to be talking about Christian friendship, hence the song and, and that intro there. Uh, essentially, we're going to be talking about what is Christian friendship or the title of our sermon this morning is what's different and what's unique about Christian friendship. How should or how is friendship among believers different? Maybe you don't think it's different. Maybe you haven't seen it uh, different in your life and in your experience. But the truth is that Christian friendship is, is very different than any other type of friendship in the world. So to begin to answer this question, what is different? What's unique about Christian friendship? We must first look at the God that Christians worship and in whom they get their meaning and purpose. The God Christians worship is a communal God. The God, uh, he is a trinity. He is, in essence, three persons within one God. And when he created humanity, he made them in his image, unlike anything else in creation. And being made in the image of God, one facet of that is that we are made for relationships. We are made to reflect our God who lives in an eternal community with the Trinity. We were designed to function best and most fully 
when we have deep, committed relationships, first with our God, and then secondarily with others. Community and friendship are a part of God's essence, of who he is, and he is the creator of human friendship. So we look to him and see what he says about it, how he created friendship, and how he defines friendship. So first of all, we'll start in the garden. We'll start at the very beginning of creation. God created the universe and everything in it, and he calls it good. He goes through and he creates, he creates the sky and the land, and he fills the sky and land with vegetation and animals and all these amazing things, and every time he calls it good. And then he gets to the pinnacle of his creation. He makes humanity. He makes mankind. And that's the first time that this, this pattern breaks. And sin hasn't entered the world yet, but God says it was not good that man should be alone. So when God created humanity, they were in unique relationship with God, and he created more, more humans. He created Eve so that we can also live in friendship and community with others, which is unique, especially to, to humanity. There we go. So here's where we're heading this morning. We're going to kind of go through these four things as we talk about Christian friendship. First of all, we're going to ask the question, what is required? What's required for us with regards to God's law? So God's the creator of humanity and the world. He's a creator of friendship and relationships. And he, he made laws so that, for two reasons, so that we could stay in relationship with him as well as we can live, uh, it, live rightly, live with peace with, with, with other people. So first of all, what's required? And then we're going to look at the bad news. How, how can we not do this? How can we never live up to God's standards in terms of relationship with him and relationship with others? And then we're going to see some good news. We're going to see how Jesus did this perfectly where all of humanity has failed. And we're going to see how he did it in our place. He did it for us. And then finally, we're going to look at now how through the gospel, through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, now Christians can do this. So let's start out with what is required. So God gave his people laws. So after the fall happened, after sin entered the world and corrupted all of humanity, God gave his people laws. They showed God's wisdom and his desire for how his people should live among each other, how they should relate to each other within uh, the community of faith, as well as how they should react and interact with those outside so that they would reflect God's nature. So he had certain laws for them so that when people saw how God's people were interacting with each other, they'd say, hey, their God is, is kind of like that. And when they were loving to people outside of their community, outside of their nation, they would, people would look in and be able to see, hey, that's, that's like the God that this group of people, that Israel, worships. We're going to look at two of these laws that specifically talk about friendship, essentially. So the first one is in Leviticus 19, one you probably heard many times before, essentially is loving your neighbor as yourself. Loving your neighbor the same way that you love you. The same way that you love yourself. Leviticus 19.18 says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So first of all, what we should think is this is not easy. 
We've heard this many, many, many times. Even if you're not a Christian here today, I am pretty confident you've heard the phrase, love your neighbor as yourself. And so we've heard it so much, it's easy to just uh, glaze over it really easily. But we need to first think, man, this is hard. This is not easy. Think about how much you love yourself, how much you take care of yourself, how much you think about yourself even on a minute-to-minute basis. And this law, God is saying, you need to love your neighbor, love other people within your community of faith, within your nation, the same way that you love yourself. So we should first of all think, man, this is not easy. Just a little bit later, there's kind of a, a second law that has to deal with friendship as well. And this one ups the bar even more. This law tells uh, the Israelites, God's people, that they should love strangers, people outside of their nationality, outside of their tribe, outside of their clan, that they should love strangers, not just their neighbors, but strangers as much as they love themselves. Leviticus 19.34 says, you should treat the stranger who sojourners with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. And then God reminds them, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt, I am the Lord, your God. So this law obviously was meant, both of these laws, to show God's people that they couldn't live up to God's standards. They could try. They could try really, really hard and maybe get kind of close, but they never could meet God's standards. Their inability to love others, and also including strangers, as, them, as themselves, showed them constantly that they are in need of help. They're in need of a remedy. All right, now let's continue with, with the bad news. How we, apart from Christ, how we can't do it. I'm sure it's everyone's experience in this room that it's really hard to love even your best of friends unconditionally or love your best of friends as much as you love yourself, let alone strangers, let alone people that don't look like you, that are different than you. The Bible also speaks about this same reality. It talks about how humanity has this inability. It's unable to fully or to always or to perfectly love others. Because of the fall, because of sin entering the world and us having a, a broken nature, a fallen uh, humanity being fallen, the Bible speaks about us not just being far off from God, but being rebellious against God, being traitors, even being God's enemies. Romans 5 picks up on this. It says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. That's kind of a spoiler alert. That's where we're going to get. So, But first, what we just want to see is that we were enemies of God. Apart from Christ, we're not just neutral, but we're actually God's enemies. And we see some hope coming in there at the, at the end of the verse there. Also, Colossians 1 speaks to this. And you, who were once alienated, and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. And so we weren't just neutral, we we're actually far away from God. We we're alienated from Him. We were distant from Him. We were His enemies. By the time Jesus shows up in the scene, hundreds and hundreds of years later, after, after these laws, He ups the ante, He raises the bar to an impossible level. When Jesus enters the scene, there's actually some people, some Israelites, some Jewish people, that actually think they have been following those laws per perfectly. They actually think that they have been loving other Jews and people outside of their nation as much as they love themselves. 
And so Jesus comes in to up the ante to show them actually they are not really fulfilling God's love. They are not really loving the way that they are supposed to, and they still need a remedy. Because these people were thinking, I'm good with God because I'm following this law so perfectly. And Jesus comes in and says, actually, you're not. It's a heart issue, and there's so much more than just this physical action that you think that you are living up to. Jesus ups the ante in, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, first of all, by saying, whoever is angry with his brother. So he, so he moves beyond just loving your neighbor and says that even if you are angry with your brother, you are breaking, essentially breaking this law. Matthew 5, 21 through 22. You have heard it was said of old, you should not murder. So he's, Jesus is quoting this law or the laws. Uh, you should not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. So it's not just killing someone, it's hating someone in your heart. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. And he continues to go on. He ups the ante. He doesn't just say you need to love your neighbor. You need to love other Jews. You need to love your, your tribe, your kinsmen, your family. And not just the stranger. But look, look at what Jesus does. Matthew 5, 43 for 44. Just a, a few verses later. He tells his people that they need to love their enemies. They need to pray for those who persecute them. People that hate them. They need to want what's best for them. Matthew 5, 43 through 44. You have heard it said, you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Actually here, he's, hate your enemy, that's not one of God's laws. It's not in the Old Testament, but they had, they had taken that first law, you should love your neighbor, and they say, okay, we should love our neighbor, but anyone outside of our neighbors, we can hate them. We can hate our enemies. And Jesus is saying, you're completely missing this law, my point behind all these laws, by, by, by doing this, by saying, well, you have to love your neighbor, but you can hate our, our, our enemies. So Jesus says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Again, many of us have heard this a lot, but think about that. Think about what he's saying. Something that's impossible, humanly impossible to love your neighbor, I'm sorry, to love your enemy as much as you love yourself. To love someone that hates you, someone that's doing wrong against you, someone that's trying to hurt you. Many of us don't have really strong enemies right now here in this life. But you read stories, even recent stories, of Christians getting displaced in the Middle East. They're, they're uh, getting kicked out of their homes, their families getting murdered or beheaded, and many of them responding with forgiveness, with love, with doing this exact same thing, praying for those who are persecuting them, forgiving those who have murdered their family and kicked them out of their homes. And just in case, Jesus goes on to say, just in case you still think, these people he's talking to, that think that they've done the law perfectly, just in case you think you're still good, even after I've raised this bar to an impossible level, he ends with, you therefore must be perfect. You must be perfect as my, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So just in case they thought they were okay, even with Jesus upping the ante here, he tells them, in order to be reconciled to God, you have to keep the law perfectly. You have to be perfect. So that's the bad news. 
We can't do it. Now it's time for some good news, the gospel. We hear this word all the time here at Hiawatha Church. Gospel means good news. So what is the good news? That's the bad news. What's the good news? The good news is Christ did that. He did it perfectly. He did what we could never do, and he did it on our behalf. He did it in our place where we failed. First way he did this, he died for his friends. He loved his friends so much that he died for them in their place. He said before he went to the cross, foreshadowing what he was going to do in John 15, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. There's no greater love out there, Jesus is saying, than someone who lays down his life, gives up his life, dies in place for his friends. And then he goes and does it. Jesus not only died for his friends, but he made his enemies into friends. Remember, Romans 5 talked about how us, apart from Christ, are God's enemies. He made us, as God's enemies, into his friends. 2 Corinthians 5, 19 says, In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. So through Christ's death and resurrection, life, death, and resurrection, God was reconciling all us as enemies back to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. So looking at all the ways that they had broken God's laws, and through Christ, he's saying, I'm not going to count those trespasses, those sins, those wrongdoings against them anymore. That's good news. That's really good news. That's the gospel. Through Christ's life, death, and resurrection, we can now have friendship with our God, with our creator, with the God of the universe. And the good news continues. Now through the gospel, now through trusting in Jesus Christ and what he did in our place, on our behalf, now through that gospel, we can love others and love God perfectly. We can now reflect our God, his nature and his characteristics So before, before we move on to our kind of our main passage today, a phrase or a, a truth that we need to get is that the gospel defines what Christian friendship is. So if you want to know what Christian friendship is, if you want to know how Christian friendship is different than friendship outside of, of two Christians uh, together, we look to Jesus. Christian friendship is defined by the gospel we look to Jesus. How did he love others? How did he make us his friends? So our main passage today is going to help us unpack this idea of what is Christian friendship. In light of the gospel, we're going to be reading from uh, Romans 12 this morning. So a quick setup. So we're jumping in, in in Romans 12. So there's 11 chapters, lots of pages prior to this. But what's happening right before this is the author. He's writing to Christians and he, he, he is just talking about the gospel. He's just talking about God's mercy on them and God's salvation. And from there, he says, God didn't just save you to be friends with him, but he saved you into a community. So you'd have lots of friends, lots of a new family that he's saving us into. So that's how it, this passage is set up. We're going to pick it up in verse 9. He says, remember, he's speaking to Christians, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, 
be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, as far as it, as it is dependent on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, and I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So the author, Paul, he's writing to Christians and he's saying, remember your salvation. Remember God's mercy towards you. Remember how God took you from being a treacherous, betray, betraying person, an, an enemy of me. He's brought you close, saved you, made you his friend, adopted you into his family. And because of that, now do all those things that he said. And all those things are actually reflecting what God just did to us, what Christ just did to us as he welcomed us as his friends. So because of our salvation and because Jesus did this for us, we're called to do two main things. First, focus on, focus inward, focus on other believers. And then the second one, focusing outside. Let's start with the first one. First, we're to view other Christians now as their spiritual family. Verse 10 says, love one another with brotherly and sisterly affection. And what, what he's saying here, he's actually writing to people who most of them are actually not family with each other, right? Similarly to us, like a church, we're not all uh, biologically related. We're not uh, actual family. But he's saying, love each other as if you were family, as if they were already one of your own. Just as many of us have this deep desire to really take care of our family or to be really loyal, especially to our biological family, many of us have that. Just like that, we're supposed to now take care of other Christians, the, the brothers and sisters within our church. So friendship now is being redefined, Christian friendship, as, as being a part of a spiritual family. So here in Romans, we're given three ways that we can do that, three ways that we can view our church and love our church as if they were family, making them our, our, our spiritual family. The first one we see is to love your friends sacrificially. Not just when it's convenient, not just when you have warm fuzzies towards them, not, when, not only when you can get something out of it, but love your friends sacrificially, just like Christ did, right? Love is costly. We spent a few months in, in the Song of Solomon, an Old Testament book of the Bible, and we saw this theme again and again. Love is costly. True love is going to cost you something. It's going to cost you time, energy, your comfort, your preferences, your desires, Tim Keller wisely writes about this. He says, Everybody says they want community and deep friendship. However, because it takes accountability and commitment, because it costs us something, we run the other way. Real friendship will cost you. It costs Christ his life to reunite you to him in friendship. Christian friendship that mirrors what happened with Christ in us will also be costly. It will cost you time, energy, resources, 
and your comfort. And at times you will be hurting, you'll be taken for granted, you'll be mistreated, and you'll be burned, just like Jesus was by his friends. But just like Christ didn't give up on his friends when he was rejected, abused, left, and mistreated, Christian friendships endure. They look to their Savior to show them how to love and for the power to be able to love like that. Secondly, we see that we need to be generous with, with other Christians, generous with our church, and to show them hospitality. Verse 13 says, Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. So first of all, contribute to the needs of the, of the saints. Saints is the a synonym for other Christians. So contribute to their needs. If you see that they have a need, help out, whether it's emotional or relational or physical or monetary. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Be generous, just like Christ was generous with us. And seek to show hospitality, it says. It's kind of interesting here, too, because hospitality often, when it's spoke of, is talking about welcoming in a stranger. Often hospitality is not just hang out with your immediate family or your closest friends, let them in your home. Often hospitality is speaking about welcoming a stranger, welcoming someone who's, who's not close to you. And who does that sound like? Just like our God, just like Jesus, right? And so what's going on here, there's this kind of, uh, this, this change in how we view friendship. We're seeing that strangers are now welcomed into homes as fellow Christians, and now friends are being made. We see beautiful examples of this all over the place, all over the place. I mean, look at anyone's home throughout the week here at Hiawatha, and you'll probably see this happening. People being very generous, helping each other out financially when people have cars that break down or lose their jobs or need childcare or pipes break and there's water going everywhere. We see people opening up their homes to share meals together, being very generous with uh, their home and food and drink. We see people living together. We see people opening up their homes for short periods of time when, when people are visiting or missionaries come back or someone's in between places or even people opening up their homes long-term for people that aren't family members, opening up their house and say, hey, I'll give you a deal or you can even stay here for free and in this, embodying the gospel, showing off a God who is generous with us, who welcomes strangers and makes them his friends. And finally, the third way that we can view other Christians as our spiritual family, as our, as our friends. Verse 15 says, Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Essentially, love them just like you love yourselves. Love them just like that was you. So when you see a friend who's rejoicing over something, you rejoice with them. And when they weep, you weep with them. I had the honor this week of holding two brand new babies they were just born to two different uh, friends, very close friends of mine. And Amy and I, my wife, we, we rejoiced with our friends. We rejoiced with uh, this couple, that both of these couples that just had a baby. Their joy was my joy. Obviously, in, in a lesser way, but still in a very real, real way. I celebrated with them, and I was happy for them. I was joyful with them as they welcomed a new life into this world. Similarly, walking through divorce or death with a friend is incredibly, incredibly painful. I've wept alongside brothers and sisters in their darkest hours, and I've been literally sick due to bearing sadness and the suffering of a close friend. 
Nearly all of you can relate to these experiences. Deep friendships enter into each other's joy and into each other's suffering. All right, secondly, Romans 12, it continues now calling us to not only love those inside our church and to see them as spiritual family, but just like Christ did, again, just like Christ did, we're to love strangers and even our own enemies. Verse 16 starts off by saying, don't be proud or don't be haughty, but instead associate with the lowly. See yourself in the lowly. See yourself as one who was God's enemy, as one who was distant from God so that we can be moved closer to Jesus. We can see him inviting us back in to friendship with him. So again, now we're, we're given three ways that we can do this, ways that we can love strangers, even love our enemies, love people that are different than us, far from us, outside of us. First thing, verse 14 says, bless those who persecute you. Actually says it twice, just in case you wanted to read over that first one and pretend it wasn't there. Bless those who persecute you. Again, how crazy is that? Many of us don't have that. We don't have people in our life that are truly trying to ruin our lives and truly persecuting us. But we're called to bless those who persecute you just like Christ did ultimately on the cross as people were nailing him there, betraying him, wrongly accusing him. He still forgave them. He still blessed them. Verse 17 continues this by saying, don't repay evil, but do what is honorable in the sight of all. And then finally, verse 19 tells us not to seek vengeance, to trust in our God who is a just judge rather than us who are unjust judges. Trust in God. Don't try to seek vengeance. He is a just God. He will take care of things in the end, whether it's through Christ or whether it's through uh, punishment throughout eternity. But we need to trust God and not seek vengeance. Second way that we can love strangers, love even our enemies, is to treat our enemies as our friends. Verse 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Again, we should be shaken to the core about what is being said here. This is crazy stuff, guys. If possible, so far as it depends on you, speaking to Christian, you, as much as you can do, live peaceably with all. Even if it's 99.99% their fault, if at all possible, Christian, you make sure, as far as, it is, as far as it is dependent on you, to live peaceably with all. Christians are supposed to be reconcilers, forgivers, people that move towards our enemies and bless them because that is what our God did for us. And then finally, show this in practical ways. Feed and give drink to your enemy. Overcome evil with good, like verses 20 and 21 said. To summarize, because of the gospel, because Jesus made us, his enemies, into his friends, Christians now offer the world the greatest friendship imaginable. We can reflect our God's sacrifice, faithfulness, his enemy love, and his friendship as we love our neighbors and strangers and even our enemies. Christian friendship is only possible because of the cross. All right, so practically, how, how does this look? How can this look? We're going to talk about two ways here. There's obviously many, many ways, but kind of two ways that are very pertinent to us here in, in 
uh, here in Hiawatha, here in Minneapolis and St. Paul, or here in the year 2015. First one is uh, social media. How, how does Christian friendship and social media, how do those two things relate? First of all, social media is not inherently evil or inherently good. It's just a thing. Okay? It could be used for evil, could be used for good. I've got a picture up here. The beginning of a beautiful friendship. So the, the reason that it's funny is because we all know that a great friendship, a beautiful friendship, cannot only happen through Facebook. That's why it's funny. We, we realize that people think that they're going to be best friends and they're only going to communicate and interact through Facebook. That almost for sure will not happen. But again, social media is not sinful, evil. It's not uh, amazing. And I mean, maybe you think it's amazing. Not necessarily a, a great and and holy. So it can, be, it can be either of those things. So, so first, let's talk about the benefits. So obviously, social media can allow us to stay connected, especially over long distances. I think about our missionary friends. They update on Facebook and prayer letters, lots of stuff like that. We're actually able to know what's going on in their lives. That's, that's a good benefit, as well as uh, friends that live, live far away. We can know if you know, they're having kids or graduating or changing jobs or, or whatever. So we can stay connected. It also allows us to communicate pretty easily. We can, uh, you know, send a message or send a tweet or something, and uh, that can be a benefit. Also, it, it can be a great benefit if it's used as a tool, not as the end result, but used as a tool to foster and build greater friendship. So one example of that is the table. So this is uh, a social media platform that we use here at Hiawatha Church. And it's, it's not replacing community, it's not replacing relationship, but it's a tool that we use together as, as a church in order to foster and build more community. Just like all those things that we described, described earlier that Christians should be doing with each other, the table is a tool that we can use that. And so through this, this type of social media, we pray for each other, we serve each other in big and small ways, we give things away, we show hospitality, Lots of things like that. So it can be used for sure. Social media can be used to, to benefit and, and build up friendships. But don't let it replace real face-to-face -face friendships. So moving on to the dangers. There obviously can be dangers with social media and friendship. It could replace real face-to-face -face friendship. If we're lazy or if we're not really careful, we, we put so much stock and so much power and so much weight into what's going on in social media as opposed to getting together face-to-face. -to -face. So you see here this picture. Actually, first what's funny about it is they all have flip phones. You guys notice that? What's a flip phone? Uh, but yeah, so the danger of social media can be you're sitting next to each other and you're still on a screen. And I mean, I'm tempted to do this all the time. I hung out with a friend for his birthday and we had our phones open like 10 times tweeting what was going on and taking pictures of each other and all that stuff. Not always a bad thing, but... The danger can be that this is what our friendships are rather than real face-to-face -face friendships. Not using social media as a tool, but as a means to the end. That's when it becomes dangerous. It can also be dangerous when social media trumps real-life friendships. Essentially, if someone likes your posts and comments on things that you do and retweets you or whatever, you think that's more important, or you're tempted to think that that's more important than your friend actually praying for you or actually being there for you, being loyal and caring for you. 
It also can be a danger when we spend more time on social media than actually having real face-to-face conversations. Or a big one too, it can be dangerous when uh, we try so hard to look good online. So our online life looks perfect, and that can be a temptation for many of us. So it can be a danger when, when that is more important than being authentic, being truly known by people, flaws, struggles, temptations, and all. We can be tempted to look perfect on the outside rather than coming to our brothers and sisters in Christ, sharing our struggles, asking for prayer, things like that. All right, so first one, social media. We're done with that. Second, practically how this can look is through community groups. So uh, friendship, friendships are, are blossoming all over the place here at Hiawatha Church through, through f- things like people meeting on a Sunday morning, inviting each other over to each other's houses, uh, carpooling together, playing softball together, washing dishes downstairs, greeting together, teaching uh, kids' ministry class, going to men's and women's and mom's events, all these different things, playing fantasy football. So friendships are happening all the time naturally. But as we grow as a church, where it's really hard to talk to many people on a Sunday morning, it gets, gets harder to do that naturally. Community groups are a really great, uh, a really great structure that we have here in place at Hiawatha. Because we know naturally it just gets harder and harder as the church grows in numbers. So we want to strongly encourage you to join one of those community groups and to commit to it. Often it's really easy for us to, to not commit to something or to start strong and then give up. But if Christian friendship is so important, if it shows off the gospel, if we were designed for it and we never hang out with other Christians, especially Christians within our church that we've covenanted with, that we've committed to, it's going to be unhealthy for us, for us spiritually. So I strongly encourage you to find a community group, especially this fall as we relaunch all of them, and to commit to one. And we're not saying, you know, you're signing in blood the first time you show up to one. But, and, and you maybe will look at a few different ones, or maybe you'll change year to year based on, you know, you go to, you have different classes at night, or you have a kid, or you move or something. So uh, there for sure is some room for, for moving around and stuff. But I encourage you to commit to a group of people, rather than just running from, from one to the other. Or when they finally let you down, or finally don't meet all your needs, you say, hey, I'm out of here. I want to encourage us to do that. So this finally, or this leads finally into how we're going to end. So this wouldn't be a complete sermon or a healthy sermon about Christian friendship if we didn't talk about some of the great enemies of Christian friendship or the big challenges that we're going to face. And the first one kind of goes back into my encouragement for all of us to commit to a community group, commit to a group of friends, a group of Christian friends. So the first challenge that we have is to love the idea of community, love the idea of deep, sacrificial, wonderful friendships more than actual community itself or more than the community that God has given you. This is true especially for younger people. I know this was my my experience, my wife's experience, a lot of our friends' experience, going through college, coming out of college in my 20s, this, this uh, is especially true for younger people, but true for everyone. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his classic book, Life Together, writes about this. He says, He who loves his dream of community more than the Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter, a destroyer of Christian community. 
even though his personal intentions may be ever so honest and earnest and sacrificial. So he's arguing here, if you say you really want community, or you really think it's such a great thing, or you, you want deep friendships, but then you're just always running away from the people God's put in your life, you're actually becoming a destroyer of Christian community. And I see this, I see this happen a lot, happened in my life, you know, many, many years, and still a temptation as well. So love who you've been given. Love who you've been given. Who has God placed in your community group? Who has God placed in your neighborhood, in your circle of friends? Love who you've been given, rather than being dissatisfied and wish that you had them as your friends or them as your friends instead. And don't hold yourself back. Say, okay, Spencer, I, I agree what you said's in the Bible and it's you know, convicting and I'm going to do it. But as soon as I get the perfect group of friends, the perfect community group. So don't, I'm encouraging you, don't hold yourself back until you get the perfect set of friends because it probably won't happen. And finally, so uh, Amy and I, we have a, a two-year-old, and we got this video monitor thing. So when he, we put him to bed, we can look on our you know, smartphones, and we can see him in bed. Uh, so similarly to, to Bonhoeffer's quote here, how, how dumb would it be if my wife and I are sitting on the couch downstairs looking at this monitor and saying, oh, Charlie woke up. Isn't he cute? Oh, we love him so much. And stay on that couch and just look at the picture. Like, how dumb would that be instead of, well, you love what this is showing you. Why didn't you go to the real thing, right? So just like Bonhoeffer is saying, instead of just loving this idea of community, of deep friendship, sacrificial friendship, why don't you stop just looking at it at a monitor and go do it or go see the community God has already placed around you. Our second challenge is one that uh, is described really well by C.S. Lewis. Uh, it's an essay in his book, The, the, weight, of the weight of Glory, and he talks about this idea of inner rings. And often these inner rings, rings of friendship or relationship, we don't really realize that they're there. Most of the people who are inside these rings don't realize that they're inside of the rings, but the people who are outside of the rings, they for sure know that they're there. They know that, hey, those people are friends. I want to get in that group of friends, but I can't. And often the people who are in that group of friends are not realizing that they're looking like a clique or acting exclusively, or they would love to have other people come in. But essentially the, these inner rings, these invisible inner rings, we often don't realize that they're there, and they're actually destroyers of real community and real friendship. I'm going to tell you just one short story, one example of this, uh, hopefully as an encouragement to all of us. Uh, when we first came to Hiawatha, my wife and I were just dating at the time. We were, you know... 19 years old or something, and we come in to, to Hiawatha, and uh, my wife saw a number of uh, older, older, not old, older women who, who, were, who were moms and who were married, and she really liked them. She really wanted to be good friends with them, but she thought, why would they want to hang out with this, you know, 19-year-old college girl? I don't have stuff in common with them. I'm not a wife yet. I'm not a mother yet. I don't even live in Minneapolis yet. We were living in St. Paul at the time. And so she felt like there was this, this ring that she just couldn't get into, this group of friends. And the funny thing is, at the exact same time, I've heard three of those same women say the same thing, now, now in hindsight, same thing about Amy. They said, oh, man, I thought Amy was really cool. I'd love to be her friend, but she's a cool 19-year-old college student. Why would she want to hang out with us moms? Why would she want to hang out with us, you know, us, us, us older married ladies. And so at the same time, 
Amy was trying, Amy wanted to become friends with these people, and they wanted to become friends with Amy, but this whole idea that C.S. Lewis is describing, there's all these inner circles that we don't quite realize. So all that to say, know that most people, probably not everyone, but most people here at Hiawatha would love to get to know you and are not trying to be exclusive and they're not trying to keep you out. Even if you're brand new, even if the, the group that you're trying to move into has a history, has uh, stories from the past, knows each other well, just know that this idea of inner circles that often both want to get into each other's circles, both want to become friends and the enemy is going to sow seeds and lies and make us feel insecure and say, they really don't want to be friends with you. Or don't pursue them because they're, you know, you have, you have nothing to offer them. Things like that. So essentially, not essentially, uh, our church is, is a church of visitors, a church of new people. We're, we're filled with many, many of those. By God's grace, he continues to grow our church numerically as well as call our people uh, to different places. So we've sent out missionary families, we've sent out church planters, we've sent people to different cities for, for work with our blessing and that they would be able to spread the gospel there. And so as our church continues to grow, lots and lots of you sitting in these pews are new or newer. And so we, we just need to understand that as a church is that many of us are new. So even though you're sitting by other Hiawatha people, maybe they're in the, many of them are the, in the exact same state as you are. And so it's just helpful for us to know that as a church that most people, and maybe not most, a bunch of people here in this room probably feel similarly to you. They want to get to know you. They'd like to become friends with more people, things like that. And I think that's really helpful for us to see or else, you know, the enemy or even just our, our, our sinful nature is going to be thinking, why aren't these people talking to me? Why aren't these people talking to me? I'm the new person. I'm the newer person. Why, why are they being so exclusive? Hiawatha is such an unfriendly place. That could be the temptation that we hear. Rather than the truth, realizing that, hey, many people I'm sitting around, they've only been here just a few months, or they're still getting to know people, or still checking out our church. So that's why we welcome people before and after service. That's why Chris and I and the announcement person and the people on stage welcome people. That's why we have that time where we get to introduce ourselves. And so I want to encourage us, especially if Hiawatha is your home, especially if you're committed here, is to be a welcomer, to not just find your best friends and catch up with them. That's, that's a great thing to do as well. But don't only do that. Let's all be good welcomers. Because other Hiawatha people have welcomed us in the past, and even more importantly, Christ has welcomed us back to himself. So let's reflect that as a church. As we close this morning, kind of three gospel applications for us. First one, most importantly, and this is for everyone in this room, be reconciled with God. If today you're not, if today you have not put your trust and faith in Jesus Christ, the Bible says you're an enemy of God. Maybe you don't feel like an enemy of God. Maybe you don't feel like you hate him, you want to kill him, but the Bible says you've rebelled against him. We've all rebelled against him in our hearts, and we are his enemies. We're far away from him, but the good news is you don't have to stay there. This book is, goes, says it again and again and again. You don't have to stay there. And so, like we saw today, we have an invitation to be reconciled with our God through trusting in Jesus Christ. So through Jesus, move from a stranger and an enemy to a friend. You have that option today through trusting in Christ and what he did on the cross on your behalf. Secondly, out of that first one, 
So especially if you're a Christian here today, because you're now a friend of God, because you've been now reconciled to him and given a community of faith, given a spiritual family, given many Christian friends, reflect Christ's friendship to you within your own friendships. Again, look to, look to Christ. How did he love us? How did he befriend us? What did he do? Do that, reflect that, mirror that among your own friendships. And then finally, be used by Christ to make Hiawatha Church, or if you're just visiting your, your home church, a place defined by deep, sacrificial, committed friendships. Hard to do. That's why that first phrase is there. Be used by Christ. Pray, Holy Spirit, change my heart. Make me a generous person. Make me love these unlovable people you've put in my community group or here in my church. So be used by Christ to make Hiawatha Church a place of deep, sacrificial, loving Christian friendship. As we end, I want to share another quote from that same author, uh, Wesley Hill. He has a book coming out called, or just came out, Spiritual Friendship. Chris uh, said it was good and you should read it, although we still have not read it. But uh, his other book's really good. We're just banking on it being good. But uh, this is a quote from him. So as we leave, uh, we're going to hear kind of his, his heart or his, his dream for how the Christian church can look like. And that's our prayer here for at Hiawatha. He says, I imagine a future in the church in which friendships are celebrated and honored where it's normal for families to live near or with single people, where it's expected that celibate gay people would form significant attachments to other single people, families, and pastors, where it's standard practice for friends to spend holidays together or to share vacations, where it's not out of the ordinary for friends to consider staying put, resisting the allure of constant mobility for the sake of their friendships. I imagine a church where genuine love isn't located exclusively or even primarily in marriage, but where marriage and friendship and other bonds of affection are all seen as different forms of the same love we are all called to pursue. Let's pray. God, thank you for the deep friendships, the, the great community that you have given Hiawatha Church. We acknowledge that it's a gift from you and that apart from you, we would fail miserably at this, but we thank you for how you foster great hospitality and welcomeness and deep friendships, deep uh, love for our spiritual family here at Hiawatha. And God, we pray for more and more and more and more of that, especially as we reflect on the gospel, especially as we uh, reflect you as the greatest friend, the one who created friendship, the one who made us friends with you through your death on the cross. God, I, I humbly ask that your spirit would move deeply among us all, that we would love your gospel, that it would lead to change, that it would lead to great brotherly and sisterly love and even enemy love as a reflection of your love for us. I pray this in your saving and beautiful name, Jesus. Amen. Amen.